Hello and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Summer is well and truly here, and our national obsession with sport is in full swing. Today's episode, Stories from the Locker Room, pays homage to this important facet of the Australian identity, with two very different perspectives on the Australian sporting scene. Both were recorded at one of our live shows at Knox Street Bar in Sydney, and both were selected via a Little Fiction's call-out, where we invite submissions of unpublished short fiction from anyone with a story to tell. Before we get started today, just a warning that this episode does contain some strong language. Our first story comes from Deborah Mackey, who is a generational local from Robe, South Australia. Deborah describes herself as a business owner, wife extraordinaire and questionable mother, who likes to wear way too many hats and stick her nose into everything. An avid writer, terrible speller, borderline problem wine drinker and storyteller. Well, it's hard to beat that for an introduction. Her story, Balls and Broken Bones, presents an insight into the role of a sport tragic in a small town. It is read by Little Fiction's regular, Kate Fraser. When you live in a small town like Robe, South Australia, there's only a certain amount of stuff you can get involved with. By stuff, I mean those things that you do outside of work and family, like hobbies, interests, extracurricular activities. The G-rated version, thanks. The very nature of a small town nestled into the arse end of South Australia dictates stuff you can do. For example, I can't all of a sudden decide to take up contemporary dance, apart from the obvious reason that that would be akin to watching a ruptured chook trying to put on a wetsuit. Those kinds of options just aren't available here. I do some volunteering, a bit of tourism stuff, some writing, loads of reading and enjoy time with the family. But on the weekend, things are different. Every Saturday in the frosted early hours of the winter season, donning thermal underwear and embroidered hoodie, I transform myself into a tape-wielding, deep-heat-smelling fanny pack-wearing trainer for my local footy club. Now, before you get excited, let's have a look at the details. I trust you've seen an AFL trainer on the television. You can picture it now if you like. See me sprinting effortlessly onto the field. Marvel as I seamlessly assess the player and make a split-second diagnosis. I marshal super swift hand signals back to the bench, alerting my fellow trainers and the medical team to deploy a motorised cart to my side. The injured player smiles weakly at me with earnest gratitude and follows every instruction I give them with a humbleness that would make Pope Francis weep. With the assistance of four other trainers, a physiotherapist and a doctor, I stretch the gallant player off the ground to a standing ovation by the fans. Now, picture the reality. It's a little simpler than that and not quite as pretty. Let's explain it in third person, just for effect. The trainer is a middle-aged 75-kilogram woman. It's seven degrees and raining sideways. She's dressed heavily and wearing badly fitted white weatherproof pants that guarantee her an indeterminately deep wedgie. She jogs, ineffectively, perhaps lumbers is a better word, towards the injured player. The oval is a churned up, treacherously wet cow paddock. 
She stumbles occasionally as the functional instability in her right ankle from years of too much champagne in high heels is exacerbated. She can see the injured player has spotted her. Holding the side of his head, he squints his eyes against the sunlight, bracing himself in a winded position. Profanities abound. She mentally revises the club's concussion policy as she approaches, her heart racing, adrenaline surging through her already heaving bosom. The mob on the hill are watching, she reminds herself. Stay calm and try not to fall over. She reaches out her hand to touch the injured player's shoulder and then, yep, you guessed it, the player jogs away. So there she stands, stranded and breathless in the centre of the oval. She watches him run effortlessly towards the action and away from her. Fucked hard, she thinks, and begins the journey back to the bench. There's no point in chasing them, apart from the fact that you look a little bit desperate and a whole lot like a loser. They'll often say, nah, I'm right, even if they are running sideways in the wrong direction and can't quite recall who they are. (laughs) Did I also mention that the return journey is just as treacherous? Try being completely breathless and crossing an oval whilst avoiding one piece of red pigskin and 36 thundering footy players. Oh, and you can bet your life, whichever way you head, that's where the ball is going. So why do you do it? I hear you ask. Sometimes when it's raining sideways and the score is 12 goals, five behinds to nothing, I ask myself the same question. (laughs) The answer is always the same. My father played for the Robe Football Club, my great-grandfather coached and his wife oversaw the making of the Guernseys in the 1960s. Great uncles, aunts, cousins and a myriad of other relations have all volunteered, played or been involved in some way. The current president is a cousin. I do it because footy and netty are a vital part of what stitches a rural community together. There's a camaraderie among the players their families, the members and the fans, which stretches not only through my hometown but between the other small towns in the league. Sure, there's a bit of he said, she said around. Not everybody is perfectly behaved all of the time, but when it comes to the crunch, we support each other. I sometimes find myself sitting with a teary 10-year-old boy after his first ever competitive game his concerned mother by my side, explaining to them how best to manage that savaged cork thigh while he tries to be as tough as a 10-year-old can be. Then, when I see his mother again in the supermarket a few days later, we talk, catch up and shake our heads in unison at the ferocity that is Aussie rules. It's a privilege to deal with people at this level. It's a small contribution back to community and it's a pleasure to watch. So cheer, cheer, the red and the white. Onward to victory. That was actor Kate Fraser reading Deborah Mackey's Balls and Broken Bones. Named after the Bonnie Kate of Kate Hall, Kate is a graduate of the Actors Centre Australia. Her theatre credits include Book of Days at New Theatre, as well as Stop, Kiss and Starlight Stories. More recently, Kate has been on screen for Home and Away, Janet King and A Place to Call Home. The next story is by film director Matt Holcomb and it presents a very different experience of the sporting industry. Matt lives in Melbourne and has had over 15 years' experience as a writer and director of commercial and narrative screen content. He has worked on The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Chopper. Matt is currently developing a feature film screenplay with Ned Kelly Award-winning crime novelist Zane Lovett. 
The short story, Hall of Fame, follows the failing fortunes of a former footy star. It is read by sport tragic and talented Little Fictions actor, Felix Johnson. On a wall inside a modern high-rise apartment hung a life-sized oil painting of former Australian rules football star Jackson Plenty, taking the greatest specky mark of all time, as voted by journalists and fellow luminaries. As spectacular as Jackson's climb was at its zenith, it was the painting's quality that better conveyed Jackson's impact. On the edge of a soiled sofa beneath the painting, as if trapped under its mythic weight, was Jackson himself, now aged 46, naked and dishevelled, a long way south of the immortalised model of fitness hanging above him. On the large television in front of Jackson, the prelude to a replayed football final was playing out. Two opposing rows of statuesque players who stood on the Melbourne Cricket Ground Arena with interlocked arms for the national anthem, the camera moving down each line past impassive faces. As Julie Anthony's sonorous voice filled the room, Jackson could not help but experience reflexive stirring, his body and mind long conditioned to associate this official rendition of Advance Australia Fair with the buzz of high-stakes football, to which nothing in this world compared. At the conclusion of the pre-match formalities, Jackson leant towards a shallow table in front of him on which he divided roughly two grams of cocaine into four widely spaced lines on a small square of mirrored glass. Jackson put his head over the glass and snorted a line through a cut straw. Thought of his twin six-year-old daughters, Veronica and Madeline, both of whom he hadn't seen in 27 days. Did another line. Thought of his ex-wife, Fiona, whom he would never forgive for abandoning him. Did another line. Thought about the life he'd had and would never have again, and snorted what was left. Jackson sat back on the sofa and waited impatiently for the surge of invincibility to strike and ignite his nerve endings, like it did whenever he'd run out onto the field or thieve the ball from the clutches of improbability. He wanted to feel like his old self again, and with a body now all but a write-off, cocaine was the only avenue to that feeling. Little did he know that, as he succumbed once again to the seductive pull of the quick fix, across town, a subcommittee put together by his former club was in the final tense throes of deliberation over whether this was the year to induct Jackson Plenty into their Hall of Fame. Why is this club so unsure of itself that it feels the need to induct some players too soon? Asked an older, more conservative member. The question hit a nerve, provoking brays of protest from others seated around the long table. Plenty's up there with the likes of Carey, Hudson, Farmer, all super talented players, good enough to be Hall of Famers while they were still playing, offered one of the younger minds in the room, to which a higher than expected number of heads nodded in agreement. One of the more senior club men shook his head, clearly troubled. Plenty's last few years don't sit well with me. The addictions, the crises, the scrapes with the law, it all adds up to a problem. With that, the mood of the room reverted to one of uncertainty and indecision. On that basis, the odds of Jackson Plenty entering the club's Hall of Fame this year were not favourable. But it was clear to everyone present, despite the post-retirement transgressions, 
There was simply no other candidate as worthy of the honour and all that came with it. Jackson, now clothed, jeans, hooded jacket and thongs, slipped into his beastly Mercedes-Benz SUV, precariously parked at the summit of a steep driveway. The Mercedes' finely tuned V8 engine started with a deep growl, not unlike that of an aggravated bear. Everything about this car spoke of excess, an entirely cynical and unlikely offering from a manufacturer that once epitomised the old Teutonic ethos of car making, of which the concept of excess had no place. Jackson tore up the rain-soaked streets, without a destination in mind, and no reason for being behind the wheel other than to heed the cocaine's incessant demands, and at the same time, replicate the joy of scything through a suffocating defensive press by weaving in and out of congested traffic, to feel the same guilty thrill of bullying a weaker opponent by tailgating motorists until they moved aside or mercifully backed off. A busy city intersection rushed towards Jackson, much faster than it would have if he'd been obeying the speed limit. As soon as the lights changed from green to amber, Jackson made the decision to floor the accelerator pedal, the speeding Mercedes avoiding the flash of a red light camera by milliseconds. The grin of a guilty conqueror appeared on Jackson's face as his mobile phone started to ring, its display revealing the identity of the caller, Gibbo. Jackson answered the call, breaking another law in the process. Gibbo, how are you, squire? Hey, Plants, I just got a text from Dale. Spiro's up to no good. He's been making a bit of noise about offloading your stuff, replied Gibbo, his voice tinged with concern. Jackson was hit head-on by the urge to pull a handbrake turn in the middle of the busy road he was currently on, his blood pressure surging. You should pay the fat prick a visit, advised Gibbo. I'd go with you, but I'm up to my eyeballs in MYOB. A second-generation Greek-Australian, Spiro Chrysaphus, aka the Fat Prick, had been a buyer and seller of sports memorabilia for over 30 years, and due to his persuasively large personality and matching physique, had been considered one of Australia's preeminent dealers for the bulk of those years. Jackson and Spiro had cultivated a strong friendship since Jackson's playing days, Three years ago, when Jackson found himself dangerously incapable of settling a sudden slew of gambling debts, Spiro came through with a generous offer to buy the football star's priceless trophies and medals, including his Roy Kazali medal, awarded to him after the, his best-on-ground performance in the 1998 AFA Grand Final. With Spiro's offer came the promise that he would store Jackson's collection until such time as he was able to buy them back from him, for the price that Spiro bought them for. Jackson's face was now red-hot with rage, his heart pounding like one of the Mercedes' eight forged pistons. He gritted his teeth and pulled off the road. Spiro and I had a deal. He promised me he was going to hold on to everything until I could buy it all back, barked Jackson. Yeah, I know, Plants, we're on your side. Beads of sweat were now racing down Jackson's face, stinging his eyes. He pulled the car over and killed the engine. By virtue of where Jackson had stopped, the tilted head of one of the Melbourne cricket ground's light towers was visible in a gap between tree branches, and the side of the tower plucked a wistful tune on his tensed heartstrings. Thanks for the heads up, said Jackson before hanging up. With a trembling thumb, he scrolled through his contacts, selected Spiro, 
and waited anxiously as Spiro's phone rang for 30 seconds until it diverted the voicemail. Jackson ended the call before the recorded message finished, threw the phone onto the passenger seat and ejected himself from the car with volcanic fury. The sight of the MCG brought up memories of raging spectators, mistimed kicks, missed tackles, missed opportunities. Abruptly, he was reminded of one of his boyhood heroes, the Juice, or OJ Simpson as he was known to most people, the legendary NFL running back, who was now more famous for the murder of his ex-wife and her boyfriend, the former actor now doing time in a Nevada prison for the armed robbery of sports memorabilia, including his own 1968 Heisman Trophy. Just over half an hour later, Jackson was standing on a friend's doorstep in the inner city suburb of Cremorne. He knocked on the door and waited. The door was opened with haste and an apology for the long wait. Jackson smiled at his friend Kane Johnson, a 29-year-old builder's labourer with a handlebar moustache and eyes that smiled in spite of his ongoing battle with depression. Kane was part of the crew that had renovated Jackson's marital home and, while on the job, would always joke that he felt bad for being paid to renovate the home of his boyhood hero. Howdy, said Kane, offering his hand, which Jackson shook with a clammy hand. How have you been? asked Jackson, not as interested in the answer that the question implied. Oh, you know, just rolling along. Jackson smiled, relieved by the brevity. Sorry for lobbing like this, Kane. I just need to ask a favour. Despite knowing Jackson for as long as he did, and the easy familiarity with which they afforded one another, Kane still had trouble with the idea of Jackson plenty needing something from him. Sure, what do you need? Jackson looked down at the ground, clenched his teeth, and then looked up, uneasy. You got time to ride with me somewhere? Where you off to? Asked Kane politely. I just thought I'd go pay Spiro a visit. Say g'day, see what's what, replied Jackson, avoiding eye contact, dissatisfied with the shiftiness of his response. The fact that Jackson was asking Kane to accompany him had to mean that there was far more to the proposed drop-in than simply saying hello. It had to be strategic or advantageous in some way, and despite the dubiousness of the invite, Kane wanted to say yes and feel fine, even excited about saying it. After all, the person standing on his doorstep requesting his company was Jackson Plenty, a AAA FA Premiership player, the most valuable player of seasons 97 and 98, a living legend. But that was another reason it felt like there were strings attached. A somebody like Jackson usually didn't mix with a nobody like Kane. But with an opportunity to prove it to Jackson and to himself... Kane said yes. Kane had never ridden in a Mercedes-Benz before. Despite the neglect and Jackson's reckless driving, Kane was still able to appreciate the sweet smell of fine-grade leather and the violent pull of the engine. How long have you had this thing for? asked Kane, voice raised to be heard over the roar of the Mercedes V8. A couple of years, I think, replied Jackson, embarrassed. It's a bit of a barge. Kane smiled, amused by the attempt to downplay the car's undeniable appeal. You remember Spiro, don't you? asked Jackson, deftly changing the subject. <laughs> yeah, man, of course, replied Kane, shifting uncomfortably in his orthopedically designed seat. Why do you ask? Wasn't sure. Things okay with him? asked Kane, feeling daring. Never better, replied Jackson acerbically.
The world suddenly went dark as Mercedes descended the ramp that led into an underground car park. Jackson had descended four levels and Flea decided to abandon his search for a free car space. With some difficulty, he eventually got the Mercedes turned around, sped back up to level one and slotted the car into a handicap space. He glanced over at Kane guiltily and killed the engine. I'm happy to look for a park, offered Kane. Nah, we'll be fine, replied Jackson, feigning confidence. They now strode along the mezzanine level of an early 80s retail and business centre, its original features buried under multiple refurbishments. In that sense, the building was not unlike the oft-refurbished MCG, which was where Jackson was in his mind. Walking up the race, the narrow space filled with the scent of liniment and the din of thousands of excited spectators there to see Jackson weave his magic. Ahead of him, beyond the race, lay the arena, glowing under the blazing light towers like neon. Back in the present, in a small meeting room of sweet 237, Spiro was gorging on a hamburger, seasoned by the sweat dripping from his nose. A pair of twenty-something Hindu women, Benita and Divya, listlessly unboxed an assortment of merchandise. Spiro watched on with his black, olive-like eyes, eating while the women worked. The doorbell rang, shattering the silence, but startling only Spiro. Reflexively, Divya left the room to answer the door. After a moment, the stillness was broken again, this time by indistinct yelling. Spiro leapt to his feet, lumbered out of the meeting room and entered the main office, a veritable Aladdin's cave of sports memorabilia with an incomprehensible and beguiling amount of items, including a framed print of that oil painting of Jackson taking that mark which adorned one of the walls. Despite the fact that he had a 9mm handgun pointed at a frightened divya, even Jackson couldn't stop his eyes from wandering while Spiro's eyes shifted disbelievingly from the gun to Divya and then to Jackson. Kane, eyes locked on the gun, trembling in Jackson's hand, was breathing heavily. He wanted to say something. He wanted to ask why Jackson was holding a gun and why he had it pointed at the woman. But foremost, he wanted to know why he was there. Jackson snuck a fleeting glance at Kane and could see the fear and disappointment etched on his face. It bothered Jackson, But he didn't have time, he didn't want to explain himself. He despised the feeling of letting others down. Jackson? bellowed Spiro, his eyes betraying fear. What's going on? I was about to ask you the same thing, replied Jackson, the gun still on Divya. Divya, just pop back into the meeting room, asked Spiro politely. But Divya shook her head, closed her eyes defiantly. I would prefer to go home, she stated firmly. Just do as I asked, Spiro bit out. Then as if to apologise, please, Divya. She stared at Spiro for a moment before strutting petulantly back into the meeting room. So what's with the armed hold-up? Asked Spiro, trembling with fear. Jackson lowered the gun. You tell me. You're the one holding the gun, replied Spiro. I heard you're selling all my stuff. Flames of anger flickered in Spiro's eyes. Says who? The Central Intelligence Agency? Spiro tried to deflect, gesturing towards Kane. 
Why is he here? Cain hadn't wanted to say anything, lest the others had realised he was in the room, trapped in this moment of drug and testosterone and ego-fueled madness. Cain's a mate, replied Jackson, pointedly. Plenty, it's simple. I've run out of money. This recession hasn't taken many prisoners, pleaded Spiro. I'm sorry. If Spiro was telling the truth, the irony wasn't lost on Jackson. He levelled the gun at Spiro, and the adrenaline surge was like nothing he had ever felt on the field, in the bedroom, or after a hit of cocaine. Did the thought of picking up the phone enter your fat head, or are you just out of credit? asked Jackson. The blank look on Spiro's face told Jackson it had never occurred to Spiro to call and explain. It hurt Jackson more than the fact that Spiro was going to sell off his collection, and it confirmed what he suspected for a long time. His prodigious abilities, his success, his fame, his legend, all of it precluded real meaningful friendships. He was even certain that everyone outside of football secretly resented him. His parents, his brothers, his wife, and down the track, maybe even his daughters. It occurred to him that he could now add safely Cain to that list. I want my stuff, Jackson demanded. Now. Spiro looked down at his feet. Don't have it. Jackson wanted to pull the trigger. Badly. Perhaps he just wanted to know what lay beyond this feeling. It's gone, all of it, said Spiro. Instead, Jackson took aim at a football covered in autographs and fired, the ball's bladder exploding with a bang almost as loud as the gunshot. Spiro's bladder sort of exploded too, instantly soaking his jeans in hot piss. Jackson sucked in his lips, aimed at the framed print of him climbing in the sky, and shot the glass out, sending fragments of glass across the room. Spiro flinched, as did Cain, letting out a sound that indicated more than fear. Cain suddenly had a hand over his left eye, blood oozing through the gap between his fingers. He stumbled backwards and fell onto a stack of plastic bins. Jackson's entire body shook. He was almost hyperventilating. He couldn't believe what he was seeing, what was playing out before him. Jackson was about to drop the gun and attend to Kane when his phone started to vibrate. He pulled it out of his pants with his free hand, wanting to throw it. Reflexively, he caught a fleeting glimpse of the caller's name. The club. It was his old football club. They hadn't called him or had reason to for over five years, and he couldn't think of a reason why they'd be calling him now. So he answered the call. And listened and dropped the gun. As he watched the blood run down Kane's arm and soak his shirt, he listened to the news with disbelief. Jackson Plenty was to be the club's next Hall of Fame inductee. Jackson looked up at Spiro, then over to the print he'd just shot up, and let himself return to the moment when he'd soared skyward and established himself as a legend. That was Hall of Fame by Matt Holcomb, performed by Felix Johnson. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed our sport-related stories. Tell us what you think. Please drop us a line using the feedback form on the 2RPH website or leave a comment on the Little Fiction's Facebook page. We'd love your feedback. We would also love to hear from you if you have an unpublished short story, which you would like shared on this show. To submit to our Little Fictions on Air call-out, please email us at 
info at shortaustralianstories.com.au. And if you've missed any of our shows, or if you'd like to re-listen or catch up on some of the extended interviews I've had with our authors and actors, you can find all of our past episodes on the 2RPH website. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer was Lachlan Perry. Bye for now.